0: Welcome to the Danny Goldberg Rock and Rolls Hour. In this podcast, Danny shares his longtime connection to the path of the heart, as well as his very engaged life of social activism. If you are interested in supporting Danny's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Danny. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg, and this is Rock and Rolls. And today I'm talking to an old friend, and someone with whom I've connected in different ways over many decades. His name is Howard Bloom, and he has a new book out called "How I Accidentally Invented the 1960s." How I Accidentally Started the '60s. But I first met Howard because he replaced me in early '70s as the editor of Circus Magazine. Then later on, we. Each at different times were head of publicity for Gulf and Western's record companies. We then, um, Howard, I think we, st- did you start your PR company in my living room? That's my I memory started, of it.
1: Yes, I started my PR company in your living room on your coffee table sharing one half of the salary of your assistant.
0: Right. And you we, were
1: extremely kind to me, and that was an understatement.
0: Well, it was uh, it was quite a moment having all those people in my apartment before I could afford an office. Uh, You went on to have a spectacularly successful PR company whose clients included Prince, Billy Joel, John Mellencamp, Michael Jackson, ACDC, and Bob Marley. Then we both separately were activists anti-censorship in the music business, and we've both written books, although you've written more than I have, including The God Problem, How a Godless Universe Creates, and The Lucifer Principle, A Scientific Expedition into the Forces of History. Unlike me, I understand you refer yourself as a atheist. I'm interested in talking about that later, but I want to start with you telling our listeners about this book. How did you accidentally start the 60s?
1: Well, it was uh, 1961. I went out to Reed College, the school that uh, became famous as the one that Steve Jobs dropped out of, um, had the highest median SATs. The school had the highest median SATs of any school in the country that year, but I had tried to drop out of school in high school, Um, I had wanted to drop out of my junior year of high school and get a motorcycle and drive across the country from Buffalo, New York, my hometown, to California, inspired by Jack Kerouac. And I had been set on the track of Zen Buddhist enlightenment because... I couldn't relate to anybody in Buffalo, New York. Nobody wanted me there. Not even my parents. They didn't have time for me. And, other And, kids didn't and when you like say
0: Kerouac, was it on the road? Was it his other book? It was on the
1: road. It was absolutely on the road. That was an iconic book in the late 1950s. And um, my parents were horrified, of course, the idea that a Jewish kid should drop out of school before there was any phrase in the English language for dropout. That coinage did not exist. They employed my high school English teacher to try to keep me back in school. But once I got out to California or got out to Portland, Oregon, then I got really serious about finding Zambuda Satori and really serious about finding the Beatniks because I couldn't relate to anybody in my hometown. I read about the Beatniks every single week in Time magazine, a magazine I read from cover to cover for years when I was a kid. And it seemed to me that if I could ever find them, Maybe they might actually like me. Maybe I might find a group that would accept me for the very first time in my life. And I got very serious about this Zen Buddhist enlightenment uh, attempt, um, this attempt at, at big style enlightenment. And before, just before the end of my freshman year of college, it all came to a head. I dropped out. I hitchhiked with two friends. Up to Seattle, um, we started gathering followers. I only had Danny. I only had questions. I had no answers. But sometimes when you are, you are focused with like a laser beam on your questions, people take that as a form of certainty, and they they mistake it. And and they oops, the, the microphone is dancing around here. Let me see if I can pin mine to my shirt so it stops doing that. Okay. Let so, me
0: let me interject a question okay. for a moment. Because you, as I understand it, excelled in science. That was your lane as a I, high school student, right? Well, it,
1: I, 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 it was from the time I was 10. I yeah. didn't really, as a student, I was never a student because I read two books a day under the desk and paid no attention in class. Right. So I was pretty much educated by the books at the local library. Um, And yes, science is my life. At the age of 10, I got into microbiology and theoretical physics, and science has never ceased to be my life since then.
0: So, you know, it's not that often that someone whose brain thinks scientifically also has an interest in kind of poetry and these big philosophical questions. That's just something you were born with, or was there a moment that turned your attention away from just the pure scientific lane? Because presumably you could have just been a scientist. Well,
1: it's a good question. Uh, Something happened to me when I was uh, almost 13 years old. I... Suddenly realized in the back of my mind that I was an atheist and I wouldn't confess it to myself because if I confessed it openly to myself I was about to blow the first party I'd ever been invited to in my life and a big chance for presents I would blow my bar mitzvah and um, Who could afford to do that? You know, you're waiting for the checks to come in so I kept this conveniently in a side storage closet of the mind until my bar was over. And then I finally was able, and of course, I had to give two months to writing thank you notes um, for all the presents that had come in. And then finally, I was able to confess in the center stage of my mind, yes, I'm an atheist. Well, that was in August. And in September, a peculiar thing happens in the Jewish religion. It's called the High Holidays. And my parents didn't care that I thought I was an atheist. The High Holidays were supremely important to them even though they were not observant they did not normally go to temple but for this they were going to make damn sure i went to temple so they somehow got me into a suit which is almost impossible i still don't wear suits today i hate them i
0: don't and think it, i've ever seen you in a suit yeah
1: no i studiously avoided them even when miles Coveland senior uh who was the founder of the um, CIA's East branch. I used to get calls from Courtney Cox, who was, was the receptionist for Miles Copeland's son's, Ian's booking agency, FBI, saying, dad is coming into town tomorrow. He wants to see you at one o'clock at the Palm Court of the Plaza Hotel. And I would say, Courtney, at that point, she wasn't yet the actress on Friends. I would say, Courtney, I don't own a suit jacket, and they require it there. Um, let me give you the names of 50 other restaurants that don't require a suit jacket. And Courtney would say, you don't understand me. Dad is coming into downtown tomorrow. Um, he wants to see you at the Palm Court of the Plaza Hotel. So that's, I didn't wear suit jackets. But the point is, my parents actually got me into their old Blue Frazier, which was a peculiar can- uh, kind of automobile back in the 1950s. They got me all the way to Richmond Avenue where the temple was but then they couldn't get me out of the car. I clung onto the door frame with both hands and they literally were shredding my socks, trying to pull me by the ankles. And I had this sudden realization, there are no gods. There are no gods in the heavens. There are no gods in the earth. And yet there are gods in this scene. Where are they? They're in my parents. There's some sort of passion, some sort of fixation, some sort of genuine something inside of my parents. And my job as a scientist is to sort of do what Galileo and Anton van Leeuwenhoek, the inventor of the microscope, did. Um, one of them, Galileo, took a device that was designed to see enemy troops coming on the horizon. It was called a spyglass. And he dared turn it in another direction. He dared turn it to the heavens and look at what everybody knew were there, perfect circles. Um, and started modern astronomy and modern science. The other one, Anton van Leeuwenhoek, was a draper. He ground his own lenses so that he could see just how tight the weave was in the fabrics that he was importing. And then, once again, he turned his device, his technology, his lens, from horizontal viewing to looking down. He looked at human sperm and he saw what he called animalcules and busted open the whole world of microorganisms. My job, was to take the lens and turn it inside and try to find the gods inside of us. And that became a mission, along with my other scientific missions, for the rest of my life. Whether that led, I mean, I became ferociously involved in poetry. It became a huge part of my life when I was 14 years old. And it, too, resonated with these things. And poetry had profound messages for me. One piece of poetry, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot. At first, I thought it was incomprehensible and deliberately incomprehensible, and that it was a con, that it was just T.S. Eliot trying to look smart when he had nothing to say. I was wrong. It turns out that the poet says, if you have something heroic, if you have something important to do in life, you must start it now. If you put it off... You will wake up someday and you will have put it off over and over again and you will no longer have the life force to do it. Do the heroic now. And the second piece of poetry was by Edna St. Vincent Belay. It was a poem called Renaissance. And it said, if you want to see the infinite in the tiniest of things, then come to comprehend the extremes of human experience in every culture, in every extreme emotion that you can possibly comprehend in your interior, in your empathic sensibilities. So they gave me travel instructions. They told me, drop everything and go out there and do the heroic and adventure and try to find the extremes of human existence. Because if you don't, you won't be able to live up to what William Blake tells you to do, which is again, to see the infinite and tiniest of things.
0: All right. Now, let me, let me, uh, I want to talk about <clears throat> your book. And again, of course, it's another thing we have in common. We both wrote a book about the sixties, but but I, I need to delay for a moment because I want to examine this word "atheist," and I want to understand it better. I've always understood agnosticism, which is the I don't know. I'm not right. going to sign on to a to a set of creeds just because uh, you know people older than me say they were true or just because certain books are old. And people built statues, <clears throat> and and I, you know, I can identify with that a certain portion of my time. There are other times when I have an intuitive notion that's different from that. But but to me, ag- agnosticism is is an extremely understandable uh, attitude, and one which which I've had at different times. I don't understand. The, to me, the word atheist means a certainty that there is no other force in the universe except uh, sort of. Uh, the human one that we know of, and I don't understand how someone could be certain of that. I could understand how someone would question all religions and, and even reject all religions, but I don't understand how one would be certain that, there, that there's not something bigger.
1: Well, my atheism is a faith, like the faith in Christianity or Judaism or a Buddhism. Um, it's a faith. And I got it, you you go through certain imprinting points uh, in your life. An imprinting point is where the brain basically opens up to a certain kind of stimulus, and when the stimulus with the right shape comes along, your brain wraps itself around that stimulus, and literally for the rest of your life fashions its morphology, its shape, its biological shape around that thing that you've latched onto. Well, one major imprinting moment for me was when I was 10 years old, and a book I was sitting in my family's living room in Buffalo, New York. The curtains were always closed, God knows why, because there was a Frederick Olmstead Park across the street. The view would have been gorgeous, And a book appeared in my lap. Well, you know the books of your parents, Danny, you know where every single one of them is located on the shelves. This was a book that had never been on a shelf before in my house. I don't know where it came from, but it was open on my lap, and it said, The first two rules of science are these, the truth at any price, including the price of your life, and it told the story of Galileo all wrong. It said that Galileo would have been willing to go to the stake in order to defend the truth that he knew was absolute. That wasn't true. Galileo, in fact, um, made a deal with the Pope and swore that everything he'd ever written was wrong and was given house arrest for the rest of his life, as opposed to going to the stake. But I needed to hear the heroic version. I needed to hear the untrue version, the version that crystallized um, courage. And the second rule, <coughs> hang on, the second rule of science is from Anton von Leeuwenhoek, the inventor of the microscope, and it is look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. Look for the things that you assume, that everybody around you assumes, your invisible, hidden assumptions. Bring them into the light, and then proceed from there. Um, those two rules, all of a sudden, those rules made my universe clear to me and I imprinted on them the way that baby, baby ducklings will imprint on a basketball if it's rolled past their nest at exactly the right moment. And so I have had absolute faith that with those two rules, we humans can come to understand things. I have had absolute faith that, that God is not a being, that God is an aspiration. Um, that we, we aspire, that there, that there is no real omniscience and omnipotence in the cosmos. It's we who aspire to omniscience and omnipotence. And that's our obligation, in fact. And that's a view that works whether you believe in God or not, because if God is real, if divinity is real, if divinity in any form is real, then there is divinity in each and every molecule of our being. Correct. And that, that I agree with. So we are the divine come to life. And it is our obligation to, to climb the ladder toward the highest form that we can conceive the universe to be, the highest level of justice, the highest level of compassion, whether there is a God or not. Because if there is no God, we are making God live within this universe. And if there is a God, we are doing God's work.
0: Well, I, I'm the, <clears throat> inspired by those words, and I, I appreciate... <clears throat> that the way you've always written, that I've read, I can't say I've read everything you've written. You've written so much that uh, that I, I just don't know if I'll get to it in this lifetime. You know, you're extraordinarily <laughs> prolific. But I've written, I've read a lot. And I appreciate that, unlike some of the people that are sort of brand themselves as sort of professional atheists, that you've expressed this belief of yours in the context of a broader... Philosophical uh, project, and it's not been done with uh, 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 contempt or disrespect for other people. It's been about your own journey, and and I and I and I and I very much appreciate that as a, as just a fellow being. But let's get back to the 60s, because this is this, the, our main topic today, and we left you in the early 60s. Uh, continue, continue your, your uh, story about what you wrote about. Well, I dropped
1: out of Reed College in 1962, and I was looking for the Beatniks, again, because nobody accepted me in Buffalo, New York, and I thought, alas, there's a social group that would accept me if only I could find them, and um, first... My friends and I hitchhiked up to Seattle and we stayed in the house of an anthropologist who was doing his graduate work, is going for his Ph.D. in um, South Pacific penis cones. You, you, have you ever heard of or seen a South Pacific penis cone? No, these, he he showed us all these pictures that he had taken. And these guys in this picture are totally naked. They're South Pacific natives and there's all and they're thrusting. Their pelvises toward the lens of the camera. So if you look closely, what you see are these things that look roughly like the Italian sausages. They feed you at the Festival of San Gennaro, the big fat ones with peppers and onions, except these don't have peppers and onions. They have pubic hair around them because these guys have hollowed out the core of this wooden thing and they've stuffed their penises in there and then they wear them and they wear them like $4,000 suits, these are marks of status. So at any rate, uh, the guy who was hosting us was so serious, he owned, or he was on the way to buying, he had a mortgage on the house, he was paying for his girlfriend's Ancha. and um, and in the basement with us was a, a, a transvestite who was really good at outdoing Josephine Baker at Haute Couture, and um, the this person who was kind enough to host us Took what I was talking about, about what I was seeking with Zen Buddhist Satori. Remember, I only had questions, no answers, as some sort of certainty about something, and decided to drop out of his job, drop out of his PhD, drop out of uh, his mortgage, and follow us. And we we were going for our next stop to uh, Berkeley. And um, and at some point in this, I hitchhiked down from Seattle um, to San Francisco because Time Magazine, which I read assiduously, I read it the way that some people would read the Bible, um, reading every single episode.
0: (laughs) Well, they were very good on psychedelics, not so good on the Vietnam War, in my opinion. They hadn't hadn't even gotten
1: around to psychedelics yet. Well, Henry
0: Luce and his wife took psychedelics in the 1950s, and they were sneaking in references to psychedelics and time and life the way Tim Leary first took psychedelics was that he read an article in Life Magazine about the magic mushrooms in nineteen fifty-eight. Amazing. In 1958.
1: Yes. The, Very interesting.
0: And, and so it was the Looses that, you know, Abby Hoffman always said that the, the Claire Booth Luce and uh, Henry Luce did more to popularize psychedelics than anybody else. And, uh, I think there's some truth to that. But I digress. Go back. I'm
1: sorry. Um, well, there was uh, other stuff happening in the 50s. I had a, when I was 12 years old or so, I, I lived on the border with Canada in Buffalo. And the CBC couldn't afford its own programming, so it bought all of its programming for the BBC, which meant that you got to listen to the BBC every afternoon when you came home from school. And Aldous Huxley, or was it Julie? Mm-hmm. And I always get my Huxleys mixed up.
0: Would have been Aldous Yeah,
1: Yeah, was he had been doing um, magic mushrooms and he had been doing mescaline.
0: Mescaline. And
1: and he gave a series of lectures on the stuffiest radio station in the world, the BBC, um, on uh, what would later be called psychedelics. So that's what introduced the psychedelics to my life. And then Parade magazine, this is back in the late 1950s. Um, which was a, a Sunday supplement circulated with your newspaper, did an article on this stuff that the um, military was doing experiments Correct. with that would actually get cats to be terrified of mice. <laughs> um, and so so that's what had prepped my mind for this stuff. but I hitchhiked down to San Francisco. So did you
0: ever in your did you ever take psychedelics?
1: Oh yes, yes, I, I did LSD twice, I did peyote twice, I did methadrine twice, though that wasn't a psychedelic. No,
0: no, definitely methadrine, not a psychedelic. Yes,
1: right. But but remember when I was <clears throat> back to when I was twelve, and after I'd had my realization about the gods inside my parents, and become utterly fascinated by what the inner experience of the gods and divinity could be, I heard of the existence of a book called um, uh, "The Varieties of the Religious
0: Experience." Yes, William James. Very right. Exactly. Big book. Big book. Right.
1: Now, in Buffalo, well, there was no Amazon in those days, and finding a book in a hick town like Buffalo is not an easy proposition, an obscure book. It took me four months, but I finally found the book, and it felt as if William James had laid out these extreme, ecstatic, um, emotional and religious experiences on a lab table, as if they were in Petri dishes, basically saying to me, who would come along 70 years later, look. I find these experiences fascinating. I don't really have an explanation for them. You're going to come along 70 years later. You will have scientific tools that I never had. I am leaving these observations to you. And one of the things that Blake said in that book, which I read at 14, was that some people are t- capable of going to beyond the extremes of the human experiences. Into I, the I'm bre- sorry,
0: you bre- said Blake. Do you mean James or Blake? James,
1: James, yes, yes okay. James. Thank right. you. Uh, beyond the the bounds of the normal human experience into the realm of insanity, and they were able to take those insane experiences and bring them back as engines of history. So one of the things I felt it was necessary to do was to go beyond the margins of human experience, go to that land where the divinities and the gods are, and bring them back alive in order to add something to the human historical experience, to take humanity up that next stair step up on the great stair step toward, uh, well, the stairway to, the, to heaven, um, in essence. I was like you, in search of the Mystic Chord, basically. Um, so, so when I hitchhiked down to San Francisco all by myself, when I arrived in San Francisco, I went straight to North Beach, which is where Henry Luce said that the Beatniks hung out all the time. And spec- he was very specific. He said they hang out. In the City Lights bookstore, which is owned by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who was one of the four major poets of the beat movement. So I went as directly as I could to the City Lights bookstore. The street was empty. I saw no beat mix. I walked into the sewer. The store was empty. I saw no Beatniks. There was a guy behind the counter reading a book. I walked up to him and asked where everybody was. He didn't even look up from the book. He didn't even answer me. I walked out on the street, apparently I looked absolutely mortified, and some kindly person came along and said, you look distressed, can I help you with something? And I said, yes, I'm I'm looking for the beatniks. And he scratched his forehead, and he rolled his eyes up, and he thought and thought and thought, and then he finally said, well, have you tried Colorado? And that was... <laughs> That was just a little too vague a goal for me, and I'd pretty much exhausted myself just getting to San Francisco, so I hitchhiked back up to Seattle um, to be with my friends again, and we became what the Beatniks had been. The Beatniks had been articulating the bohemian voice of a generation, Um, and that's what Ellen Ginsberg's Howell pretty much said that he was doing, and that included articulating things for me. But now our articulators were gone, and somehow, in merely pursuing the disappeared articulators, we became the articulators, and a movement began to cohere around us, and we ended up in a big pink and damned house in Berkeley, and people started coming and joining us. So we became the the nucleus of a a movement without a name. And the movement wouldn't get a name for another two or three years. And when it did get a name, it would be called the hippie movement.
0: Okay. Well, um, that's, uh, that's, uh, I'll tell you this, it's a terrific read. And, and, you know, for, for a guy with a scientific uh, background, you do uh, that all reading all that poetry really did, uh, did sink in because it's got a humor and a poetry to it that is uh, to me quite different from some of the other stuff that, that, that you've uh, read. So now let's just, here we are in 2017, um, what, what do you think, uh, and this is a question people kept asking me, but I want to hear your answer, what do you think uh, remains from the, the hippie movement, good and what was bad and what has disappeared?
1: Well, the good stuff. to me is what has disappeared. Remember that first principle of science, the truth at any price, including the price of your life. We're in the era of Trump. We are watching the mere concept of truth almost threatened to disappear as if it had never, ever existed. In fact, it would have been impossible for you and me to predict uh, just a year ago that such an astonishing disappearance of the truth and the very idea of the truth and the very idea of fact checking could ever exist we would have thought that truth is so obvious that it could not be simply wiped away like this. And yet in the year of a president who lies about everything, um, we are threatened with the disappearance of the truth. Well, the the spirit of the 60s was a spirit of adventure, and it was a spirit of going beyond the normal limits and risking things hugely in order to find new truths and bring them back alive into the realm of our collective perceptual existence, because culture is a perceptual engine that we all share and ever since the enlightenment or the Renaissance culture has that the boundaries of what culture can perceive and understand and control has been continuously increasing from generation to generation and it has increased through the adventures of those of us who go to the fringe and beyond and then bring back the stories of what was of what we found out there in the great darkness um All of that is very strongly needed in the era of Trump because all of it is based on the idea that there are truths, truths worth living and dying for. The negative, the drugs are useful because they really are mind expanders, but they have to be used in moderation. Um, There were three of us who basically this movement coalesced around. One was this gorgeous Adonis of a man named Dick Hoff. He had one of those pockmark scarred faces you've ever seen in your life, but he was about six feet tall, and in those days that was tall, and he had a body that you only see on Greek statues, and he was so magnetic, physically, that when you, I'm a tiny little person, so when I, and I look like a cross between Woody Allen and Kermit the Frog, so when I walked down the street with Dick Hoff, women's eyes would fixate on him and follow him, and they would cut through me, like a, a wire, one of those cutters used for wire cutting through cheese. Um, and it was an amazing experience. And Dick had never known a moment of depression in his life. I don't know how he'd he evaded it, but somehow he'd never experienced it. And because he was avid to experience absolutely everything there was in life, he was hankering after understanding insecurity. And depression and emotional pain, all things he had never experienced. So it was Dick Hoff, myself and his girlfriend, Carol. Well, the excess of drugs, now using drugs, not as a tool, but using drugs in the hope that they will somehow all by themselves save you, liberate you, uplift you, upgrade you. That's a mistake. Because nothing can save you, uplift you, and upgrade you, but your own damn persistence in accumulating the lessons of life and finding the joys and the infinities wherever you possibly can. So Carol, I was told, later became a vegetable because she was overdoing it with the drugs mm. that is a very negative mm. part of the experience that we left behind mm. and then mm. there's you know our two books are like companion books in search of the mystic cord well what in the world was i doing out there on the well, west if coast I,
0: if i may say it's called in search of the lost cord
1: oh in search of the lost cord so i was in search of the mystic cord i was in search of the lost cord out there the, Or you couldn't have picked a more appropriate title. But you and I were different because well we weren't. You have always been in search of that element of divinity that is actually an emotion inside of us that sometimes springs up when we see again the infinite and the tiniest of things.
0: Well, I'm divinity. a few years I'm a few years younger than you and so yeah. uh, it's it a lot of it, you know, sort of 1967 was 1967 whether you were 17 or whether you were 24 um so that energy hit me at a, when I was a bit younger than when it hit you. Right. And, and uh and that was my imprinting, you know. So that's uh that's a that's a big uh part of it and part of it is just you're born I, I think there's a mystery to uh you know uh, to who we are. I uh, you know again having having a couple of kids who are so different from each other growing up in the same household. I don't think uh you know environment and nurturing is the only factor. I do think there's some essence that we have some of us call it a soul you could call it something different I don't care what the word is but I just think you come in with certain things and I just always thought there was something else going on uh, besides uh, what was right in front of my eyes you know I still do I don't know what to call it always and I don't know what to do about it always but I'm I'm sure there's something more than this conversation going on
1: and I'm absolutely convinced that you are absolutely right and in a sense, on paper, our backgrounds, even though we do come from slightly different eras, um,
0: look very much the same. It's remarkable. No, going over preparation for this, it was, it was quite fascinating, the amount of commonality and yet very separate lives. We only talk every every couple of years. But there is an energy that we tap into in, different, in very different ways. Uh, so the... the, the um, you know, the, 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 the knock on the 60s culture, the hippie culture, is that it involved uh, self-indulgence and uh, didn't uh, lead to uh, compassion and community building. Um, what do you make of that criticism?
1: Well, I find I used, when I came back from the West Coast to Buffalo, New York, after a year of absence, I stood around with the very few people who'd been willing to accept me and said, you know, there's a movement and I've just come from it. And it has two distinct branches, and one is the spiritual branch, and the other is the political branch. And the political branch disturbs me, because the political branch is primarily run by people who have a pursed lip expression on their face, who very much want to deny you and me all kinds of things, who are harsh totalitarians, who, well, for example, in the way they treated their women. You know, if you were atop, at, at the top of the movement, I uh, used treat women as they were as if they were or something like oh that. there's
0: no question feminism emerged within the left because the the radical culture uh, was was uh, not get, you know women were for making coffee that did change by the end of the 60s and feminism burst forth and a lot of the left uh, embraced it but uh, uh, it didn't start out that way that's for sure
1: so I thought I thought the real goal of the 60s was the spiritual quest this attempt to achieve enlightenment, this attempt to achieve this inclusive view of the cosmos and everything in it um, that would burst forth to you in certain moments when you felt at one with all of this stuff that you had come to know. Um, And and I regarded the political folks as my enemy. But the two of us have been very engaged in politics. You've been engaged in mysticism ever since I met you. Mm. You've been engaged in Buddhism at a level that's so far beyond anything I've ever achieved that it's ridiculous. Well, I don't and know, yeah.
0: but I'm, I'm a little more attracted, actually, to the Hindu devotional path than to Buddhism, but I honor the Eastern religious energies because they just uh, touch me in some way, and uh, I don't really even understand it was just one day. Uh, I always attribute it to the Beatles and, you know, <laughs> George Harrison talking about, Krishna. But in any event, uh, we're all in the same swimming pool, that's for sure.
1: Right. But and look at our political activities. You've been extraordinarily political. You ran Air America, hmm. which is the, was the radio station, television station of the left, the TV channel, trying to do for the left what Fox TV has done for the right. Um, for a while and you've done tons of other things. You've been a friend of Norman Lears for a long time who runs the people for the American way or founded it and all kinds of other things. You were involved with, in the anti-nuclear crusade with Jackson Brown. Um, and I've been politically engaged all my life too. I went into, um, I started writing position papers for political campaigns in 1964 when I was 21 years old <clears throat> and I've been involved with, um, uh, establishing Amnesty International's North American presence, founding Farm Aid, um, and not to mention uh, the NAACP, the Black, the Black United Fund, and the United Negro College Fund. And yet the balance is, well, we both have both of these in our lives, but the people who were pinch-lipped back in the 60s or 70s still scare me. Um, for their lack of compassion under the guise of compassion. So we have two extremes that, that were negative. And one was that extreme of not seeing what's under right under your nose or seeing it with joy because you're so committed to a an abstract political ideal. And the other was an overdose of drugs. There's a bloomism. There are lots of mm. bloomisms. Any good thing in excess is a poison. And that's true of both a political point of view, and it's true of drugs, but it's excess it's abuse that's the problem yeah. not use. there's yeah. a difference between use and abuse
0: so what about, who are there, who what political figures um, inspired you then, and does anyone inspire you today?
1: Well, that's a good question um, because uh, there were no figures that I found really inspiring um, in the 1950s. Um, It was an era of the men in the gray flannel suit. And I, I did have one friend in Buffalo and I spent a lot of time at his house and his parents were academics. His father ran the law school at the University of Buffalo and they were bigger on dumping on people than admiring people. Um, they dumped on people like Oily Ev Everett Dirksen. I guess he was the spokesperson for the House Assembly or Senate or something. He like was that. the
0: Republican leader in the U.S. Senate. Yeah, uh-huh. he, he was. So, the, he was the Mitch McConnell of of uh, at that time. Uh, uh, although he was more moderate than Mitch McConnell, and he ended up working with President Johnson to pass the Civil Rights Bill. Right, but bless he, his heart. But he he had an incredibly irritating persona, uh, you know, a a pontificating, long-winded way of expressing himself that lent itself to parody?
1: Well, the person who inspired me didn't really come along until after um, I'd done a lot of this activity in starting the early 60s in 1961 and 1962. By the way, I was one of many people, I'm sure. I didn't meet the rest of them, but I'm sure there were many catalytic catalytic figures like me around whom movements were crystallizing
0: i'm glad uh, that you acknowledge that thank
1: you yeah i mean i am just one one molecule in an ocean when it comes to starting the 60s and the reason i use that title is for one thing i make fun of myself a lot in my titles i'm in mean, my youtube episodes no, it's, a, called- it's a
0: good title it's it's a catchy it gets people's attention you also are a, a pr man as i am by trade and you know how to get attention which is a good right. thing
1: and uh, it was a part of the 60s that nobody realizes there that that right. early period. And so, but a person who came along a little bit later was John F. Kennedy, and he became inspiring when he said, uh, "We will go to the moon in the next eight years, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. We choose to do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard." He set a goal that gave you literal uplift, literally got you looking up, and then. He worked to achieve it, and he said, we're doing it not because it's easy, but because it's hard. We're doing it because we are at our best when we challenge ourselves. That's going to the extreme of the envelope and then stepping beyond exactly what the spirit of the 60s mm. was all about. And his words are so persuasive that last night I did my first bookstore appearance mm. um, for how I accidentally started the 60s. It was a packed house, mm. It was the community bookstore out here in Park Slope. And I started explaining the meaning to me of what Kennedy has said. It's still, we still need uh, political articulators who can give us visions that look up, who can give us visions that go beyond the bounds, in this case, not just the bounds of our own perceptual envelope or our culture's perceptual envelope, but the bounds of the planet itself because life is greedy, life is imperialistic, life is colonialistic, and life went, it took, took over a poison pill of stone that was the mother of all climate catastrophes, and it turned it into a green surface, even though it's only a tiny bit of green compared to all of the stuff on this planet. It could do it once, it's anxious to do it again, and there are other bold and poisonous pills of stone circling above our heads. They're asteroids, moons and planets. And life believe me, is E, believe me. We can't use that word those two words these days because they've been taken over by Donald Trump. So, But life is eager to get beyond this one little stone and to take on poisons and catastrophes and turn them into wonders all over again. And the only species on the face of the earth, we're not the smartest species on the face of the earth because bacteria can do research and development absolutely as fast as you and I can. Right now, bacteria are 12 miles beneath our feet, 12 miles turning raw rock into bio stuff, into the stuff of life, kidnapping, seducing and recruiting dead atoms into this incredible enterprise of life the one thing that we can do the bacteria and we haven't figured out how to do that but do
0: they do it consciously or unconsciously i mean i
1: with with, totally without conscience right so i thought
0: that the the distinguishing factor of the human species was level of consciousness not you you know because obviously there are a lot of things going on in the universe but In theory, we have some consciousness that other creatures don't have. Well, Carl
1: Sagan was right. We are the universe come to consciousness. We are the universe become aware of herself. Now, we're not the first form in which the universe has ever been aware of herself because the universe started mirroring herself and trying to understand her own laws in a coded system, in a library called DNA. That's the first symbolic representation of the cosmos designed to make predictions about what's going to happen in the future and generalizations about underlying patterns. But the one thing that we humans can do that no other species on earth can do is take ecosystems beyond the gravity well, is take ecosystems beyond the atmosphere, is take ecosystems to all those other bald and barren poison pills of stone awaiting us up above our heads. And what I got the most enthusiastic response to yesterday was the idea of taking the regolith, that is the the raw rock and dust on the surface of the moon or on asteroids. Um, those things can be used as concrete, steel, glass, and microchips, and building these huge Christmas tree ornaments in the sky. Christmas tree ornaments so big that you can have forests, fields, parks, houses with more space than Bill Gates has for his house. You can walk your puppy dogs. These, we're talking about colonies in space. And that's where we can build our ideal real estate. But we do owe an obligation to life, To it's called terraforming, to make Mars green as well, and even despite all the difficulties to do it with the moon, to do it wherever we possibly can. And wherever we plant life, life is gonna thank us by evolving whole new ways of coping with the environment and finding treasures in trash, finding treasures in terrors um, that we never anticipated before. And the, the scope of what life can accomplish is going to expand because we were the UPS and Federal Express that took life beyond the heavens.
0: Were you an admirer of Buckminster Fuller? Because the way your mind works reminds me a little bit of tapes and film I've, I've seen of him.
1: I, I never liked him. And it was primarily because he was a designer and I'm very into visual arts and design. I, I ran a commercial arts studio for three years. It was my way of getting out of my advanced degrees in in neuroscience and getting into something I knew nothing about popular culture. And I don't like his designs for Mm, things. Right. So I was never into him. And then a guy named Olby Murphy is making a film about Buckminster Fuller and called and said, I want to interview you for my film. And I said, but you don't understand. I never liked Buckminster Fuller. He said, it doesn't matter. And then he came to Park Slope and he filmed me. And I still didn't understand what was going on. But I told him what it's like to be a lost child who has no place in his world, who has no friends. And um, and he used that, he said, as the narrative core of the film, um, because well, I'm glad
0: I'm not the only one who saw the similarity. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: he's, and he's gone out. I have a great big fan in Jeff Bridges, who's been reading my stuff for the last my my writings for the last 22 years and he went out to shoot Jeff and Jeff got all excited when Jeff discovered that that Noel and I knew each other. But So Noel's film is yet to come. It's been filmed at Yale. It's been written up in The New York Times. I don't think he's gotten the money to finally complete it. But yes, if the film ever comes to be and if I don't end up on the cutting room floor, there is a strange intertwining.
0: Between- I, 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 You know, there's so much we could talk about and. This, the length of this won't allow us to get into everything. For example, I, we could do a whole hour just talking about rock and roll. But I don't want to let this podcast pass without talking to you about another aspect of your life that's really inspired me and fascinates me, which is how you, how you overcame chronic fatigue syndrome. Because there was a period of time, uh, you'll tell me in more detail, when you literally couldn't leave your, your, your home. And now you're doing, um, according to Facebook, 700 or a thousand pushups, uh, a day in your, in your seventies. And this is a disease that is not so easy to deal with. Uh, what were the factors that allowed you to transform yourself from, from that, uh, low state that you were in for a while?
1: Well, I was in, locked in the bedroom for 15 years. I thought I would never get out again. For the first five years, I was too weak to talk and too weak to have another person in the room with me. I actually wrote all these episodes. I have been telling the stories. They're pretty amazing stories that are in How I Accidentally Started in the 60s as an oral tradition for decade after decade after decade. And now, when you're sick, Danny, you give off repulsion cues. You give off cues that send other people running from you. It's very So I knew from my research for my first book, The Lucifer Principle, that if you don't have a social context, if you don't have friends, um, you begin your, your immune system begins to kill you off. Your perceptual system shuts down. Your biology, your very biology within your own skin begins to kill you off. It's called apoptosis. And I knew I was going to have to gather friends around me somehow when I couldn't talk and I couldn't have them in my apartment. So I started to write down these stories and my life had been saved by a, a virtual reality that had been created for me by P.G. Wodehouse and Dave Barry. So when I wrote, I was trying to give off attraction cues and humor is an attraction cue. So I tried in my own way to write up to the absolutely transcendent style of humor of P.G. Wodehouse and Dave Barry. And I sent out the episodes that became the chapters and how I accidentally started the 60s, uh, probably an episode every week. In those days, we had to use snail mail to do it. So I had an assistant at the house who would take these things and print them up and put them in envelopes. And yes, it did land me two entire friends. But those two friends did so much to save my life, it was ridiculous. So one was keep your social connections. Do not let them die. If you have to develop new ones, do develop new ones. Lesson number two, it took me three years to realize I had a vision of my future. I was going to get out of PR in the music industry because I had learned an awful lot about the gods inside from that experience. And I needed to go back to my science. And I was halfway through writing my first book when the illness hit. And my view vision was. Someday I would take my wife, who I adored, and I would go out on the road the way that my rock stars had gone out on the road. And I would do uh, to promote my book. I would do every single morning television show and every single radio show and every single daily newspaper, just the way I'd set it up for so many of my clients. Well, now with no, with the strong sense that I would never get out of my bedroom again, that entire sense of myself disappeared. And my sense of humanity, of even being a legitimate human disappeared. It was frightening. You have no idea of what your Mm -hmm. sense of humanity is till it goes. And it took three years, but I reconstructed myself in the one piece of real estate where I could actually semi walk around. It was called cyberspace. It was brand new. It was before the World Wide Web. It was before um, Amazon and Google and all of those things, but it was there. So I had two computers set up next to my bed and uh, a monitor and a keyboard that was set up on bolsters so I could see it when I was flat in the bed. That was the second element of what saved me. Find something of your interests that you can still do. Now, again, I was too weak to talk and too weak to have another person in the room with me, but I wrote three books And I founded two international scientific groups. So, And and when my wife divorced me, and I felt that the last thing in the world I had was my relationship with my wife, and it felt like the last string was being snipped, I got so depressed that I tried to kill myself. And I lay in bed for three days like a corpse, not a single muscle moving except my diaphragm. It was keeping me alive and my heart. And I woke up with stigmata, places where the blood had just coagulated and pooled coming right out of my skin, holes in the skin. And I had learned something about myself, which is there was something deep inside me, the soul that you were alluding to. It is a part of that. Um, When you're talking about the uniqueness of your kids um, that refused to die. I didn't refuse to die. I tried to kill myself. Mm -hmm. But that thing inside me absolutely refused. No way was it going to die. So I learned there's another part of me. Mm It's a part of my volition. And then I added about one at a time, I added about 30 different drugs, and I probably tried another 30 that didn't work, and I kept very careful records and saw which ones seemed to correlate with more energy, and uh, eventually put them together into a big package. And it's the 30 drugs, along with a whole change in my lifestyle, radical change in my lifestyle, that finally got me out of bed, and then a friend approached me at one point, and said, you know, the Duchess of Kent has got what you've got. Could you write her a two-page letter on how to cope with it? So instead, I wrote her a 14-page pamphlet, and I've updated the pamphlet ever since. And if anybody's in the kind of serious trouble I was in, and you can send me your email address and just ask for the CFS pamphlet, I'll send it to you, and it will tell you at least how I got out And
0: it. And you have a website where people can find out about you. What What is it?
1: Well, the website is howardbloom.net. And they can follow me on Twitter at Howard X. Bloom. And I'm on Facebook. And um, it, you can send me a message on Facebook. That's the easiest way to get through to me.
0: Great. Now, um, okay, I share your enthusiasm for John Kennedy. I actually think he's an underrated leader, given the way people have focused on his personal life and uh, all of the attention to President Johnson. I, I'm a great, great admirer of John Kennedy. But that was a long time ago. Uh, What about in the modern landscape? Who do you admire?
1: Well, that's a difficulty because um, I kept trying to get across to the Hillary campaign when she was running for president because I felt that Hillary has an inability to come up with headline hooks, uh, ways to express her points of view. Bernie Sanders, I admire, and yet I'm scared of him all at the same time. I admire him because he is able to put things in simple terms. Medicare for all, that's his program for the American medical system. You can put it in three words. That's astonishing. Yeah. The idea that that in the same way that grammar school and high school is free an advanced education, college should be free, at least assuming you have the, the work ethic and the intelligence to merit college. Um, that's a terrific idea. Um, but there are things about Bernie that that scare me too, but of all the leaders, he is the closest to a leader that we have, but he's something like 77 years old at this point. I mean, yes, it's true. I'm 74, and I do do, sometimes when I'm lucky, 7,700 push-ups in a morning or 800 push-ups in a morning or when I'm not lucky, 550 push-ups in a morning. So there's something radically different about being in your 70s in our era than there was 50 years ago. When in in your 70s, you were senile and you were doddering on a cane. We're we're not like that anymore. But Bernie needs we need a new Bernie to guide us. And I haven't seen anybody with that charismatic ability, the ability to put together a program that lifts your eyes to the skies the way John Kennedy's programs lifted your eyes to the skies And to put things simply so they can make headlines, Bernie is the only one I've seen. Have you seen anybody that you consider to be charismatic?
0: Uh, um, No, I mean, I think there are some younger people that have that potential that I've, you know, you just see glimpses of them on shows. Uh, You know, uh, there's a couple of political figures from Hawaii that are interesting to me. This Warren Schatz, a senator, and Tulsi Gabbard, who's in the House. But I don't know enough about them, and I haven't, they haven't had an, I haven't had enough exposure to them to know if they really have a fully developed ability to do it. I I have a lot of confidence in the young generation. I'm very inspired by their, first of all, by their ideologically, their, you know, they, they made Bernie who he is, you know, and, and uh, in terms of his public stature was, was, that was all about inspiring young people. And, and, and I think that somebody's going to emerge. I don't know who it is. I don't have a, I don't have a horse in the race, but I'm, I'm, uh, I do believe that that the energy is out there and that someone will come along to articulate it. I uh, I thank you so much, Howard, for doing this. Uh, it means so a great just, deal to me.
1: Back, it, let me it, go back even a little further. I thank you for the role that you have had in my life. We've been like strange doppelgangers. I know. since 1971. And I am so, I'll use a strange word for an atheist, I'm so fucking blessed to have you in my life.
0: Well, it goes both ways, my friend. Let's do another one in a few months because you have so much more to say and and to share with people. Uh, But for right now, I just will say this, Howard Bloom, I love you very much. And
1: I love you too. Okay, have a wonderful afternoon. Later, Gator. Bye, Danny.